0: Ed Flash Ferrens.
1: Power to the pilots. Delta pilots reach a deal on a new contract, giving them a 34% wage hike. The NLRB union fighting to keep the agency going. And today on the show, the latest from the Ohio AFL-CIO, and we check in with AFSMI in the state of Nebraska. Welcome to the Tuesday, December 6th edition of America's Workforce, where... We are available on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Tim Berg is going to be our first guest on the show today, longtime supporter of America's workforce. He comes to us as president of the Ohio AFL-CIO. We're going to talk about the remaining weeks of the legislature and the state legislature, and we'll touch on Congress as well. In the state legislature, there's a real controversy brewing It's called House Joint Resolution 6 or H.J.R. 6, which would pave the way to requiring that any citizen initiative amendment not only go through the existing difficult process of getting on the ballot. I mean, there's a bunch of hoops you got to jump over. But also, if they get their way, You'll need 60% of the vote to pass. So it's going to be more difficult for citizens to change the law if the legislature doesn't follow their lead. And right now, there's a lot of groups that are very, very unhappy. 140 at uh, last report. And these are voters, teachers, faith community, good government leaders. And they're saying that uh, any attempt to make it harder for voters to amend the state constitution will be not only unpopular, but very expensive and most likely will fail. Now, here's the here's the crazy part about this. Under H.J.R. 6, constitutional amendments placed on the ballot by the legislature would still only need a simple majority to pass. In other words, the measure itself could become part of the Ohio Constitution by getting less of the vote that what it would require if we had it in place. All it needs is uh, 50% plus one vote. If it passes, it would take 60%. Ohio's current system of citizen-led efforts to amend the state constitution goes back to 1912. And the critics have said that... uh, the lawmakers, primarily Republicans, have failed to make a convincing case why they need to change it now. Now, it's my understanding there are other states that have that 60%. We'll talk about that with uh, Tim Berger and also see uh, what's on the table in Washington. One of the issues is the uh, National Labor Relations Board. I'll get to that in a minute. Justin Hubley will be joining us later in the show, and he is the executive director of AFSME local 61 which is based in nebraska and this is uh, affiliated with the nebraska association of public employees or nape for short and this organization local 61 is uh, has been getting ready for a new round of contract talks with the state and they're taking steps to broaden support to secure a fair contract for state workers this uh, This union represents more than 8,000 government workers throughout Nebraska, and it is growing rapidly. Listen to this. It grew by 100% between August of 2018 and August of this year and counts one in five state workers as members. Boy, they're doing something right over there. A little background on Justin. He served as the executive director of uh, Local 61 since 2018. And as executive director, he is responsible for executing the union strategic plan developed by the board of directors, managing day-to-day operations, and supervising the field staff. He's a lifelong public servant and trade unionist, was a high school music teacher for 13 years, first elected as a local union president back in '07. He has over 15 years of experience in negotiating, collective bargaining agreements, member advocacy, organizing, and political action. Obviously, he knows how to grow a union. So Justin Hubley will be checking in with us as our second guest right here on America's Workforce on behalf of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 61 out of Nebraska. Now... For a brief look into the world of labor, the segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. How does a 34% pay hike sound? Well, Delta Airlines has offered that amount. It's a cumulative pay increase to its pilots over three years in a new contract. If the deal is approved, it is widely expected to act as a benchmark for contract negotiations at United Airlines and American Airlines. Here's the, uh, the breakdown. Delta pilots will get a raise of at least 18% on the date the contract is signed, another 5% after one year, 4% after two years, and 4% after three years. They will also get a one-time payment equivalent to a cumulative 22% of their earnings between 2020 and 2022, and that's after the deal is ratified. Now, the carrier's pilots have been working without a new contract for nearly three years. That's hard to believe in itself, and this happened after the old contract became amenable in December of 2019 and that caused a lot of frustration with the pilots so in october they voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike if negotiators could not reach an agreement on a new contract in a memo to its members the union representing delta pilots said the deal represents more than 7.2 billion dollars of cumulative value increases over the next four years delta said it's pleased to have reached an agreement in principle, one that recognizes the contributions of our pilots to Delta's success. Now, in a year of protests for the industry, pilots at all major U.S. carriers have been demanding higher wages and a better work-life balance. Hundreds of United pilots picketed outside Chicago's O'Hare Airport. This was last Thursday asking for an industry-leading contract. And last month, they turned down an offer that included more than 14.5% cumulative wage increases and enhanced overtime and training pay. That was turned down. American pilots also rejected a proposed 19% pay hike over two years that would have cost that carrier about $2 billion. Now, the pilots are also demanding a better quality of life. They say staffing and operational issues at carriers are driving up overtime, leaving them pretty much exhausted. And in its memo, Delta's Pilots Union said more than 25% of the value of the contract agreement is, in fact, dedicated to quality-of-life-related items. The uh, proposed deal, get this, provides for 10 weeks of paid maternity leave, two weeks of paid parental leave, and reduced health care. Reduce health insurance premiums. Too bad the uh, rail workers didn't get a contract like that. They'd be a a lot happier now. So hats off to uh, Delta. This still has to be ratified. We'll keep you posted. Last Thursday, this was on December 1st, the Union for the National Labor Relations Board announced a rally at uh, NLRB headquarters in support of their staff A staff that's been facing increased caseloads and possible furloughs. Karen Cook is the president of the NLRB Professional Association, which is a separate union of 122 staff attorneys and specialists at the agency. Karen sent a letter to Congress asking for greater appropriations. This is what she said. We work on 10-year-old computers with limited legal research tools and outdated electronic case management systems. Ironically, the proposed raise for federal employees, although well-deserved, is no boon to employees here at the NLRB. Having already made cuts in spending, the agency has no room to absorb payment of the increase without an increased appropriation. Karen went on to say, I know of no other federal agency that will be forced to lay off employees in order to raise pay. And no other federal employees whose cost of living increases will be clawed back in the form of unpaid force furloughs. She went on to say, we are left to wonder what rational prospective public servant would sign up for a career defending national labor relations rights when Congress has made clear that those civil servants are so disfavored. This is, uh, this is one to watch, and there is a tug of war going on because you got to keep this in mind. There are members of Congress, primarily conservatives, that do not want the National Labor Relations Board. They want to squeeze it. They want it to disappear because they're on the side of corporations. Let's be honest here. So we'll see what happens here. We had a good conversation on this with uh, Fred Redman on behalf of the AFL-CIO. And that is the number one priority for the AFL-CIO going now to the end of the year until Congress finally leaves for the holiday, is to make sure they get some kind of funding. Because organizing is going crazy right now. And 10-year-old computers, come on. UAW held its first open election last week, and the results single, quote, a wave of opposition, To the established leadership, this according to the New York Times. After years of choosing its president and senior officials through delegate elections, the UAW held its first one-person, one-vote election, in which the union's 400,000 active members and 600,000 retired members were, in fact, eligible to vote. Now, out of that amount, 100,000 ballots were cast. And in the race for the president, the incumbent president, Ray Curry, defeated challenger Sean Fain by 614 votes, according to the Associated Press, citing unofficial results posted on a federal court-appointed monitor's website. However, here's the deal. Neither candidate won a majority of the five-candidate field, so Ray Curry who got 38.2% of the vote and Fain, 376 will head to a runoff election. And that'll happen next month, sometime in January. That's sad. You think about all the people that were eligible to vote and only 100,000 ballots were cast. It's pretty similar to what's going on nationally. Speaking of voting, big election today in the state of Georgia. And that, too is a special election because Raphael Warnock did not get over 50% of the vote. And the AFL-CIO has been hitting the ground on that one. So uh, I'm sure we'll get the results late tonight on the Georgia Senate race. All right, quick break. When we come back, Tim Berger on behalf of the Ohio AFL-CIO. This
0: is America's Workforce.
2: It takes LIUNA to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of LIUNA, the Laborers' International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the side of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, DC's congested interstate, LIUNA members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by LIUNA at liuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.
1: fge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-C-I-O America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils The AFL-C-I-O
0: is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our raising wages agenda, go to aflcio.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferencz.
1: And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Make sure you get the word union in there. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to Columbus, Ohio right now. Welcome one of our longtime regulars, Mr. Timothy Berga, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO. We're going to take a look at what's on the agenda for the rest of the year in the state of Ohio and also for the country. Tim, the last time uh, you and I had conversation, it was right before the midterm elections. I know, you know, <laughs> it didn't go all what you wanted, especially in the Senate race, but there's a couple of bright spots. So maybe you can give us uh, your perspective of, of how how things went and where you see things will be going. Go ahead. Yeah. Well,
3: hey, Flash, how are you? And it, that's right. And Last time I was on the show, we talked about the importance of the U S Senate race and we're uh, disappointed that, uh, Tim Ryan was not able to win that. And the turnout was a real problem, um, in the state and the big city counties, uh, really didn't turn out, um, like was needed to. And, uh, so that's something that will be looked at and analyzed, uh, especially when the final vote is certified by the Secretary of State's office. So we know exactly what the numbers are. Uh, but there were three targeted races and uh, for Congress that we were working on, and uh, our endorsed candidates won all three of those. That was Marcy Captor's re-election up in northwest Ohio, Amelia Sykes um, out of the Akron area, Won an open seat, and our endorsed candidate in Cincinnati, Greg Landsman, knocked off an incumbent. So, um, those three targeted congressional races, we won all of those, and and we won three state school board races that we uh, with our endorsed candidates that we were working on. So, there were some bright spots, but um, uh, overall disappointed at the very top of the ticket.
1: You know, you mentioned the state school board and the story on that is because I guess uh, three Democrats won. They want to uh I guess uh change that board around and put it under the governor's discretion. Um is that going to happen? What and maybe you could explain what's going on here. It seems like, well, you know, we we won the battle, but we may lose the war here. What's what's your take on this?
3: Yeah, there's uh, there's legislation that would strip the Ohio school board, which is um, partly elected, partly appointed by the governor, school board and make it basically put the power in the hands of the governor. So one person rather than a board that's overseeing uh, education in the state of Ohio. And it's it's another sort of uh, taking away power from the people sort of move. And that's going to be a theme that we're going to be hearing this lame duck. And I'm sure that you've already been hearing about it.
1: Well, let's talk about this uh, effort to change the Constitution. And, you know, we've seen this over the years where voters, if they don't get their way in the legislature, they'll, they'll go to the voters and say, you know, we have to perhaps uh, get a referendum on. That's one way or perhaps change the constitution and uh, let's talk about house joint resolution six which will not need 60 percent of the vote to pass however (laughs) if it does pass voters will have a hard time changing the constitution explain what's going on here tim
3: well it's another attempt to take fundamental rights away from Ohio voters. And, uh, you know, that's the theme of this lame duck legislative session in the Ohio General Assembly, our state house here. And for 110 years, Ohioans have had the right to collect signatures from registered voters in the state and take things to the ballot to amend the Ohio Constitution. It's not used that often and rarely do these constitutional amendments pass should they get to the ballot. Um, but again, it's taking away a fundamental right from Ohioans to be able to do this by requiring that if a citizens led constitutional amendment initiative gets the required signatures, which is very difficult, you'll have to get 400,000 signatures from registered voters in Ohio. And it's not just like you know getting a signature on a piece of paper. Uh, it is a laborious, Uh, legalized process where each county has its own form that's determined by statute and the signatures, uh, how the signatures are collected and signed by the voters are required by statute. So it's very hard to get these 400,000 signatures and you have to get a a certain amount in each of the uh, half of the 88 counties. So 44 counties also have a, a minimum threshold. So we start there. It's very difficult to get it on the ballot. It's not overused and rarely do these things pass. But, you know, things like term limits for our state legislators, minimum wage uh, raise, things like that have over the years uh, been popular with citizens. And they were frustrated that our elected officials weren't doing anything. So they went uh, with direct democracy by getting the required signatures and going straight to the ballot. So what the House Joint Resolution 6 does is say, Well, if you do get something to the ballot, it requires 60 percent of the vote in order for it to be put into the law rather than 50 percent plus one. So the the rule of simple majority would be out the window and, again, a fundamental right taken away. So what we're asking, Flash, uh, and there's 140 organizations representing good government groups, representing labor, representing uh, faith-based community, have – contacted their state house leaders saying uh this house joint resolution um is not necessary it's a solution looking for a problem it's anti-democratic and just uh, stop with the nonsense so we're asking your listeners to contact their state of state ohio house of representative member and tell them to oppose house joint resolution six
1: so, Tim, they're working this as we speak. Did they want to get this passed by the end of the year? Is is that the story?
3: Yeah, what they want to do is, and there's a hearing tomorrow in the Ohio House of Representatives in Columbus uh, to, uh, for testimony on this. They'd like to get it done during this lame duck session, which means, lame duck means after the elections have happened and before the new legislature comes in. And then come January 1, you start all over again with a new legislative session. They want to get it done now. So uh, it would appear for voters to vote on this thing in the May primary ballot of next year.
1: And I'm reading they've tried this in various states, conservative states too, um, Arkansas, for one. Voters shot down a measure similar to the one that's proposed in Ohio, and they shot it down by a margin of 59 to 41. Then there's South Dakota, similar proposal, and uh, that was shot down 67 to 33%. I, I guess those those figures don't mean anything. They, they think that Ohio is a little bit different. Is that where they're going on this one?
3: Well, they, they simply – haven't been interested in the will of the voters. I mean, that's been clear with how they've handled the redistricting mess, right? Uh, Determining our state legislative maps. So it's just simply another power grab. And to take away a fundamental right that Ohioans have had for the last 110 years Hmm. without any reason to do that, right? Yeah. So uh, we're hopeful that uh, there's sufficient enough outrage to get
1: this thing stopped. Yeah. We'll see what happens here. Very sad. Very sad that they're they're going in this direction. Okay, a lame duck nationally here. And uh, I know we had Fred Redmond on the show on uh, on Friday, secretary, treasurer of the AFL-CIO, and he brought up the uh, National Labor Relations Board. And it sounds to me that it looks like the entire AFL-CIO is behind this move to get funding for our for our labor board. Because right now, I mean, they're, they're working on 10-year-old computers, and, and organizing is going crazy. Can you explain this, uh, this campaign here? And do you think Congress is going to budge on this?
3: The National Labor Relations Board came out of the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s uh, to do one thing. It was to protect workers' rights to organize and uh, form and join a union should they choose to. And the Biden administration has been very adamant about returning the NLRB back to its uh, original intent of doing just that. Um, And there are a number of Republicans in the U.S. Congress that don't want to fund the NLRB sufficiently enough um, to make this a reality. So we're trying during the congressional lame duck to get the appropriate funding to fund the NLRB so it can get back to its original intent of protecting workers. Mm-hmm. And we're also trying to get the trade adjustment assistance reauthorized in Congress. And remarkably, you know, we haven't got it reauthorized yet, and it simply allows for funding to help retrain people who lose their job because of unfair trade. Right. So those are the top two priorities for us during this lame duck Congressional session, we're optimistic that um, that we can get both of these things done. But and both of these things should be a, a no-brainer. But um, politics, being what they are these days, even even simple, basic things like this are uh, seem to be a, a, a tremendous struggle.
1: The uh, trade adjustment system has been in place since 1974, I believe. And uh, we saw a lot of jobs disappear because of these horrible trade deals. I, I don't know what the problem is here. Do, do some members of Congress, you said it's politics. Do some members of Congress feel that these trade laws are, are OK today, that workers are not losing jobs? In your opinion, what what, what do you think the problem is? <laughs>
3: Well, unfortunately, there are members of Congress who, if it's something to help workers out, they just seem to be adamantly opposed to it as part of it. The other part of it is just the pure politics of not wanting to give Biden or the Democrats a victory. And it's, again, just putting politics over what's right. And, you know, this last election, when you look at it, nationally flash was really a repudiation of of all of that sort of nonsense, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And if you look at the candidates that were put up for office, a lot of them were these Trump-backed candidates that simply were just a head in the sand, pure politics, and that was rejected nationally in a year when Republicans should have had a really good year and they didn't. Right. So we're hopeful that we can turn the page on that We can have honest disagreements across party lines about issues, but basic things like trade adjustment assistance for people who lose their job because of unfair trade. Come on, let's get that done. And uh, that's what we're working on right now in the congressional lame duck session.
1: One more question here before you go, Tim. You know what's going on in Georgia today, that special election. Mm -hmm. How How do you feel about it?
3: Well, it seems if you look at the turnout and, uh, we, we, uh, our organization has sent two people down there to help out and, and, uh, you know, going door to door and, and whatever the Georgia union leaders and rank and file members campaign they've got going down there to elect Warnock, you know, we're helping out. We're doing our little parts. So what I'm hearing is the energy is very strong for Senator Warnock and, um, You know, it's it's terribly important that Senator Warnock has proven himself to be somebody that will vote with workers and and issues that help the economy by improving the middle class. And Hertha Walker, I'm not sure he even knows how to define what a worker is or who the middle class is and why it's important. So it's awfully important that we send the right people to Congress and Raphael Warnock has proved himself, and it seems like he's got a lot of momentum going into the
1: final day of voting. Well, I'm sure we'll find out late tonight. Tim Berger, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, you take care, my brother, and believe it or not, we'll talk to you in the new year, okay? Thank you, Flash. All right, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we're going to the state of Nebraska. Check in with the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees.
0: You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens.
2: This segment of America's
0: Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyandBallotSystems.com to learn more.
1: The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll free at 1-800-443-3752. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn
2: more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org.
1: America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and and sign-and-display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American.
0: Now... Back to Ed Flash Farrance with America's Workforce.
1: And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just do this. Sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, by the way. And this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, where you can find more at oh.aft.org. I also want to plug the uh, annual Martin Luther King conference that's going to be taking place in Washington, D.C., January 13th through the 16th, the 2023 AFL-CIO, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference, they call it. AFL-CIO says, well, we've seen a lot over the past few years, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to advance civil and human rights both across the country and inside our own labor movement. So if you want to register, just go to this website, themlkconference.org, themlkconference.org. A lot of unions participate in that. All right, let's go to Lincoln, Nebraska right now. Welcome a newcomer to the show. Justin Hubley is his name. Justin has served as the executive director for the Nebraska Association of Public Employees, AFSCME Local 61. And the Nebraska Association of Public Employees is better known as NAEP. As the executive director, he is responsible for executing the union's strategic plan, and he's done a pretty good job organizing. Justin Hubley, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, my brother? I'm great. Great to be with you. So you are, I see, you're from the Chicago area, and uh, you spent, what is it, over 15 years um, negotiating, collective bargaining agreements organizing things like that but you were actually a, a high school music teacher talk to me
4: about that time in your life justin yeah you bet well uh, interesting uh, getting into unions uh, i always joke my story i started with some free pizza my mentor teacher who was assigned as part of our collective bargaining agreement uh was the vice president of the teachers union and i didn't really know what that was so he told me i had to go to a meeting because there was free pizza and that's about all it took for me when i was 22 years old and Uh, The rest is really history. I got involved with our teachers union uh, right off the bat, had some great mentor teachers who had served as negotiators. And uh, I noticed uh, some pay discrepancies between our music teachers and some of our athletic coaches. I love sports. I love their coaches, but I didn't understand why my pay was lower than theirs. And the union got me involved and said, "You know, would you like to be part of this negotiations team? And I was hooked. And so uh, that's a little bit of my background
1: so that free pizza goes along well you probably still use some free pizza to get meetings together right hey if we meet we eat right <laughs> i like i like that so uh you uh, you moved over to lincoln nebraska and you you had local 61 here talk to me about that time and how, how did that happen for you was there like an opening in that position explain that part
4: yeah, there was. Um, you know, the Nebraska Association of Public Employees were actually celebrating our 50th year this year. And uh, the, the association was founded in 1972, um, and really to try to get state employees here in Nebraska collective bargaining rights. And the union fought for 15 years and in 1987 secured those collective bargaining rights. Uh, But frankly, the union fell on on hard times um, between 2010 and 2020, a fairly regressive collective bargaining law in Nebraska. We're glad we have one, but uh, for public workers, it's a little bit tough. And uh, just kind of the neglect and uh, there was a decertification of a pretty large uh, bargaining unit. And so um, Nape was looking for uh, a new leader and I interviewed and uh, talked a little bit about you know, my vision, and uh, we have a new executive board, and so uh, right now we're kind of in the process of growing and executing that. So that's how I ended up here.
1: And right now you're representing, what is it, 8,000 government workers throughout Nebraska? Is that pretty accurate?
4: That is pretty accurate, yeah, the, over 40 different state agencies uh, that are based in all 93 of our counties.
1: Yeah, I'm looking. You got uh, the employees in the state of Nebraska and the Nebraska State College System and the Nebraska Department of Education. Um, Justin, you, you mentioned about the, the attack on, on collective bargaining, and we've seen that in various states, Wisconsin, Michigan, I mean, states that, uh, you never think they would go right to work. Uh, you are, you are a right to work state, isn't Nebraska in that category?
4: Uh, Nebraska was the very first right to work state in 1947 after the Taft-Hartley Act was passed. You're correct.
1: Okay. Okay. Has anybody tried to change that over the years?
4: You know I think there's been efforts um uh, to to do that, but uh obviously it's been tough gaining traction here
1: what what about the the attack on collective bargaining you you're talking about the legislature some years back uh, can you be specific on what they what they tried to do what they crafted out what they were successful at doing to to kind of suppress unions there?
4: Sure. Well, the the State Employees Collective Bargaining Act is is what we work under, and then there's also an Industrial Relations Act for private sector unions and other government unions, but specifically our State Employees Collective Bargaining Act. um, We bargain every two years in a cycle with the governor, Um, but if we can't reach an agreement, we go through an impasse proceeding with our state's labor board. Here it's called the Commission of Industrial Relations. Well, the problematic part is that the Labor Board is appointed by the governor whom we're negotiating against. So it's not really a fair – there's no real fair process. And in fact, the the statute has ways that that board can lower our salaries if we reach impact. So with that looming threat of kind of lowering salaries – um, sometimes it's difficult to reach an agreement. And so the union over the years has sometimes accepted kind of low ball salary offers to avoid the threat of losing uh, money and bargaining. And so um, in 2011, kind of in the Scott Walker times in Wisconsin, um, our legislature here attempted to kind of gut that law further. We were able to stave that off. Uh, and so um, the law is still in the shape that it is, has been for the last 10 years. But, um, you know, it's always a looming threat, in my opinion.
1: Well, we just went through some elections in November. How's Nebraska faring now? And what, what do you see for 2023 in the legislature?
4: Yeah, well, for those that don't um, remember their high school civics days, Nebraska is the only state in the country that has a unila—excuse uh, me—a unicameral legislature. So we just have a one-house system here, and we're the only state in the country that has that. So there are 49 legislators. Uh, we call them senators. And um, it, because of the unicameral nature, it takes 33 votes to pass really anything through our legislature, or else it could be filibustered. And after the election in the fall, uh, we believe we uh, – uh, the more conservative folks are really trying to push for a filibuster-proof majority that they would have had 33 senators, um, and it looks like we've staved that off. Um, we have one race that is still very close and going through a recount uh, because it was uh, within 1%, but we're pretty confident that we'll have those 17 votes to kind of fend off. Uh, very difficult uh, pieces of legislation, but frankly, one of the strategies of our union is to uh, to work with, regardless of political party, because technically our legislature is nonpartisan. The senators run in nonpartisan elections, although clearly they have political affiliations. But our goal is to work with folks, um, pro-worker folks, and educate folks who might be a little bit more middle of the road that just need to learn about how they can support workers uh, to make sure we have enough votes to stave off any crazy pieces of legislation. So that's what we're looking <laughs> forward to in 2023.
1: <laughs> it's funny you mentioned crazy pieces of legislation. We're seeing that all over the country. So Nebraska is not alone on that. So my hat's off to you on, on what you've been able to do. You know, you 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 grew your union here, which, and I want to get into that because obviously when you took over in uh, 2018, I mean, you, you had a mission here. I'm just wondering, was this a, like a strategic plan? You're saying, okay, here's where we are. This is what I want to go. Can you go back and, and explain? How you got from point A to point B, Justin?
4: Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, it did start with a strategic plan, but it was really a, a, a call to arms, so to speak. We, we were in a bad place. Uh, we were down to, at our low point, just 950 members out of you know 8,000. So we're batting you know, less than 10% membership, and, and that's not a very strong union. So uh, our board, we, we, we really had to recruit leaders. That was part of it. Um, you know, the, I think when I got here, about half of our board was vacant. We were able to get out and about and travel and talk to people and our members about the importance of getting involved. But our 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 strategic plan really focused on kind of four areas and really um, organizing is one of the big pillars, but the other three pillars are what helps us organize. So the first is uh, we had to negotiate better contracts. Um, And so um, we really were firm in our first round of negotiations when I was here and got some victories for our members um, that showed what a union can do. They weren't fabulous, but they were something after Mm -hmm. 10 years of nothing happening. So great collective bargaining, number one. Um, Two, contract enforcement. Um, Our poor workers here, when I got here, uh, the state was running roughshod over um, contract rules and violations uh, because nobody was enforcing it. So we filed a lot of grievances and had great success. I think our grievance rate win rate over the past four years has been, oh, up over 85%, Um, and so people are seeing that the union is effective that way. Uh, And then communications, we have to communicate what we're doing. Why are we winning? How are we winning? And uh, then it's just good old-fashioned get out there. I've traveled to all 93 counties. Um, My small staff has gone above and beyond uh, talking to people and showing them success. So, you know, we've grown by uh, about, uh, I think, 1,200 members in the past couple years, net, um, so we're up over 2,100 members now and uh, look forward to continuing to grow. Obviously, depending on where folks are listening around the country, they might say, boy, that's still only about 25% union membership. Uh, but but uh, considering where we've been now, we think the future is very bright.
1: That's good. What, what's your goal for uh, 2023 and beyond? I, I'm sure with your success over the last couple of years, you got your sights even higher, right?
4: Yeah, well, the long-term goal is to have majority membership, and that's going to take us you know, probably five, five six more years. But um, in the short term, I'll tell you just a short story. Our, our union, um, luckily we have a pretty active little retirees group, and and um, one of the executive directors from back in the 80s and 90s was part of that group. And I asked him, I said, well, what was your largest membership? And he said, boy, it was so frustrating because – when the State Employees Collective Bargaining Act passed in 87, they had a majority of state employees voted yes for the union in eight bargaining units, but they never had majority membership. And he so said it was so frustrating that people wanted the union but wouldn't join it. And so, um, you know, our goal, they had a goal in um, right around the year 2000 that was called 3000 or bust. And we've got some great pictures that we dug up in our archives um, showing that organizing campaign. And they fell a little bit short. And so, our goal in 2023 and 2024, it'll be a biennium goal, is uh, to to do that, 3,000 or bus, and have 3,000 members.
1: I love what's going on in Nebraska. Good stuff there. Justin Hubley joining us on our live line today. He comes to us from NAPE, that's the Nebraska Association of Public Employees, affiliated with AFSME Local 61. Here's the website NAPE, NAPEAFSME.org. We'll continue the conversation right after this.
0: This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com.
2: That's L-I-U-N-A dot org.
0: There is unity and strength for workers.
2: We are the U.S. We are
0: the U.S.W. The United, United steelworkers. steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America.
3: We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean.
0: We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper,
3: oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector.
0: We are Steelworkers. Steelworkers standing strong and fighting for what's right
3: hi this is liz schuler president of the afl cio and i am a huge fan of flash and america's workforce radio and podcast
1: the heat and frost insulators and allied workers are proud to be a title sponsor for america's workforce radio the insulators union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry fire stopping and infectious disease control Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org.
2: America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd-Waterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwaterson.com.
0: To America's workforce, here's Ed Flash-Ferrens.
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast before we uh, go back to Nebraska here. Got to give another plug here to Scott Paul and the team over at the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. It's still early to do some shopping. 2022 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide is available. Just go to americanmanufacturing.org and they have a list of uh, products spotlighting more than 120 companies from all 50 states the district of columbia and puerto rico a lot of people they did some polling and they said you know what we want to buy gifts that are made in america and we don't know what to do well here's your chance Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. Let's go back to Lincoln, Nebraska right now. Rejoin Justin Hubley on behalf of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. This would be Local 61. Again, the website is NAPE. That's the Nebraska Association of Public Employees. NAPEAFSME.org. Justin, you got to help me out on this one here. I saw a story. About the battle over blue jeans or denim gate. <laughs> I, apparently, <laughs> now I understand. There, there's certain protocol people have to wear. I mean, I work in the court system, I have to have a sport coat and a tie. I mean, it's something. But when it comes to uh, certain jobs, there should be some casual attire. Okay, explain what's going on here, Justin. This is a good story.
4: Well, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, this started all back in December of 2019. i the CEO of our Department of Health and Human Services. It's our largest state agency, about 4,000 employees there uh, that work under our contract. Uh, she unilaterally changed uh, the employee's dress code. And she changed it that they had to wear business casual Monday through Thursday. Now, our employee has to appear in court as child family service specialists or have certain commitments, of course, would would dress appropriately for the occasion. Uh, but what the CEO did is she made this this decree and many of the workers worked behind locked doors processing you know, economic assistance benefits, child support vouchers, et cetera, never interface with the public. And all of a sudden they were going to have to go out and buy new clothes and wear business casual. Well, furthermore, some supervisors um, were in the exact same work site behind closed doors were allowing casual dress, and some were not. And so our contract has some provisions uh, about uh, implementation of policies. But furthermore, state law says that that's a mandatory subject to bargaining. And we thought the case law was pretty clear on that. So um, long story longer, we filed a grievance and that grievance uh, went before an arbitrator. And the arbitrator was quite critical of the agency and, and uh, the implementation of the policy, thought it was a clear contract violation and uh, ordered them to go back to their original policy and or negotiate one or the other. And so they didn't like that very much, and the arbitration decision was binding. And so uh, shortly after the arbitrator issued his ruling, um, we, got a, we were served with a lawsuit and um, They were going to go to court and try to overturn the arbitrator 's uh, decision, uh, so folks who you know go through the nLRb process might be it 's a little different we 're under the Nebraska Uniform Arbitration act, but similar to the federal law and uh, we went to court and we defended ourselves it 's hard to overturn an arbitrator, and the district court judge agreed with us. And then they appealed, and um, that appeal would normally go to the Nebraska Court of Appeals. However, on the Nebraska Supreme Court's own motion, it was advanced to the Supreme Court docket, and the Nebraska Supreme Court heard oral arguments on that case just a couple weeks ago, and um, uh, we had a great group of union members that traveled to hear the court hear the case, and uh, we're pretty confident after hearing the justices' questions to the DHHS attorney, they seem pretty incredulous that that this could be overturned uh, under the Nebraska Uniform Arbitration Act. So, interestingly, the whole blue jean issue was resolved years ago. Um, the state's chief negotiator agreed after the arbitrator's decision that it needed to be negotiated, and we negotiated um, language into our contract to make it real clear when that can happen. Uh, so, really, the Supreme Court case is about overturning arbitrators, uh, and we're confident we'll prevail on that. But it has been a three-year battle, but real unifying for our members. I, we joke about the blue jeans even amongst ourselves. It was really never 100% about genes. It was about what you have to bargain. Um, But it's been a a fun thing because the media has picked up on Denimgate and other titles, and it's been pretty funny stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have to ask you, do we have any idea how much money this costs taxpayers? I mean, a three-year battle, that had to add up considerably, don't you think?
4: Yeah, absolutely, and, and uh, we, we don't have an exact number yet. We've, we said we would wait to file that Freedom of Information Act request until it was all done, but um, it, it's given us, uh, you know, when any time uh, the local media here uh, posts a story about it, um, you know, the comments from the taxpayers, it's pretty clear that this is just a waste of everybody's time and money, but when a CEO uh, gets upset that they, they think that they're right uh, and they have a legal team that's just the taxpayers paying the, the money, why not, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Again, the band was wearing... Blue jeans Monday through Thursdays. Friday was okay. Friday was okay. Monday through Thursday, not not good. Oh my gosh, crazy stuff. Okay, one more here, and uh, I'm I know you get some crazy winners, and I'm reading that there may not be enough workers to plow the snow off the highways this winter. What's uh, what's
4: going on here? Is it is just they're, they're not yeah, applying yeah, for the
1: jobs or what?
4: Yeah, and it's not a may, there may be not enough workers, there there aren't enough workers. And yeah, they aren't applying, and they're not applying because our starting wage for a Highway maintenance worker here in Nebraska is seventeen dollars and fifty-five cents an hour, and that's just not going to cut it in today's market. Um, but further beyond just those highway maintainers who are plowing the snow at seventeen fifty-five an hour, our diesel mechanics start at eighteen sixty an hour, and um, so we actually have a lot of pieces of idling equipment at yards across the state uh, that haven't been fixed because we don't have the mechanics to fix them. So whether it's a labor shortage, which it is, or an equipment shortage because we're not caring for the equipment, it's, it's a combination of both. So uh, we're very concerned. Um, we lucked out last winter. Uh, you you wouldn't believe it, but uh, last winter was the least snowiest winter on record in Nebraska. Um, and so... There were no major snowstorms, and so we really dodged a bullet. I don't think we're going to be able to dodge a bullet this year, and I don't think the taxpayers are going to tolerate it, especially you know, Nebraska is a very rural state in the western part of the state. You know, the, our state highway is the only paved road in either direction for 20 miles. Um, if it's not clear and open, I think the public's not going to tolerate that. So we're hopeful. Uh, we're at the bargaining table right now and trying to make some progress, but that's been slow and frankly, we need relief uh, immediately to make sure our roads are safe and the public is able to use them.
1: Well, you mentioned some uh, some um, salaries here, which are ridiculously low. Do, do are they bringing up some figures that may attract some workers at this stage and saying, hey, because I am reading, I guess they're, they're, they're offering some bonuses for diesel mechanics. I guess there's
4: four thousand dollar bonuses for that. Is that helping any right now? you know uh, it's i think it has helped in the sense of it's helped retain some people that might have otherwise left because they know that that's going to help in the short term and if, through our bargaining we can solve it long-term, they might stay, but it's not really attracting people because the wage is just still too low. Um, and so we, we really feel that bonuses are kind of a Band-Aid solution, and so, you know, negotiating higher wages is, is the way we got to go. Uh, you know, we've got the data, and we think that, you know, we could probably win if we end up at impasse for specifically for our road maintainers, but... Um, you know, right now, our our governor-elect who takes office in January, his team is at the barring table offering um, proposals of zero percent, which is just silly. And obviously, that was rejected. And we'll be back at the table this Friday. Um, but yeah, this is a problem that we have to solve. But we, we know the reason why we can't fill these positions uh, are because of the wage, for sure.
1: And you know what's going to happen here. You're going to get a Huge snowstorm. The taxpayers are going to go crazy saying, what are you what are you doing here? And this is kind of similar to uh, like, you know, when when they say that there's a certain bridge that needs repair and they just keep ignoring it. And all of a sudden the bridge collapses and then all the politicians get together, said, oh, OK, we got to do something now. I mean, it's it's just kicking the can down the road. Very sad. Very sad. All right, Justin, great job today. Justin Hubley on behalf of the Nebraska Association of Public Employees, which is affiliated with AFSCME, local 61, N-A-P-E o r g. Any uh, parting words for our audience? It's been a pleasure having you on the show.
4: Well, no, it's been a pleasure being here. And, uh, you know, I just tell everybody, if you can organize a union in Nebraska, you can do it anywhere. And, uh, you know, let's keep fighting for higher wages, better working conditions for working people.
1: Well, keep doing what you're doing. I like that. You really turn things around there. More people, we need more people in labor like yourself. So, uh, so keep in touch with us, okay, buddy? Sounds
4: great. Appreciate it.
1: All right, Justin Hubley on behalf of Ask Me Local 61. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce tomorrow. Let's see. We've got the Painters and Allied Trades District Council 7. They're based in uh, Wisconsin, and they cover parts of uh, Michigan as well. And we're going to check with United Association Local 538 in the state of Tennessee. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day.
0: That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find
2: out more information online at labortools.com.